to episode 21 of the Romantic About Baseball podcast. I am your co-host, Adam McKinnon, joined as always by my other co-host, uh, Jim Passon Jr. Jim. Uh, good to be here. See, we caught up uh, episode numbers, caught up to uh, Juan Soto's age, finally. That's right. So. It can drink yeah. and play left field for the Nationals. Uh, joining us this week is a very special guest. Uh, let's see, podcaster, author, uh, commissioner... Uh, Rob Nyer, how are you, sir? I, I'm well, and uh, it's uh, it's uh, it's already fun to be here. So thanks for ha- <laughs> thanks for letting me do this. Of course, yes, no, it, thanks for coming on. Yeah, it's really all, the pleasure's all ours. And you know, I, I so you are the uh, the esteemed host of the SaberCast, and and you know, it, by coincidence, I, I started listening to your show a little bit after we started doing this show. And um, we ask a very similar opening question. So I'm going to ask you the question I've heard you ask so many people. Um, what is Rob Nyer's baseball origin story? Well, I think that when I was a, a little boy, uh, and I can, I can remember back to the age of six, basically, in terms of playing sports, uh, I just loved to play which is not a particularly interesting or, or uh, unique uh, story, especially for kids who grew up when I did in the 1970s. We didn't have quite as many uh, diversionary activities. We we had four channels on the TV. We didn't have video games. Uh, we had books. We had a few TV channels, and we had sports. Uh, so uh, I, um, I love to play anything and everything. I remember one year... My mother, uh, she had, there were two of us, and I don't remember if my brother played everything. He probably did. Right. But I played floor hockey, basketball, football, and baseball, and had to go to all the practices and all the games, <laughs> and mom had to, she was probably driving me somewhere, one of us, yeah. every night, uh, which, of course, I never thanked her for, because I was an idiot kid. <laughs> but point being, I, I loved all the sports equally. Uh, baseball just sort of being the summer sport. Uh, it wasn't until uh, we moved to Kansas City uh, in 1976 uh, that I really became a, a true uh, aficionado, um, obsessive, whatever word you want to use. The Royals were really exciting in the 1970s, the late 70s in particular. They had a bunch of great players. They won their first division title that season. And everybody, it seemed like everybody loved the Royals. So as a transplant, it was very easy for me just to sort of fall into the habit of watching the Royals, listening to them, uh, waiting for the box score to come out next day's, in the next day's paper. And I was obsessed probably within a month of us moving there. I was a, a, I was a crazy Royals fan and remained one for a long time. And my love of the Royals led me to be interested in all the rest of baseball, uh, especially the history of it, but also then later the Cubs and the Braves because they were on TV and right. it just sort of blossomed. Okay, um, you so according uh, to your to your website, uh, you've you've over your lifetime you've 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 been a writer, you've been a blogger, you've done a lot of things, but you've also written or co-written seven different books. And you know, I kind of wanted to jump in and ask you right away. You know. A lot of these books are very historically driven. You know, the big book of baseball blunders. You wrote a book with Bill James on the, the Guide to Pitchers. Uh, you are a recent uh, Casey Award winner for uh, Powerball, the Anatomy of Modern Baseball, the Modern Baseball Game. Um, you know, so as you, you know, adopt writing and as you get more into the game, um, how, you know, what inspires you to tackle a particular topic? 
Um, are you, is it something that as you're, as you grew into baseball, like you were drawn to certain things or is it something, is, is it just something like, Oh, this is interesting. I'm going to write a, you know, I want to write a book about it. I, I think really, I, I, well, I can't really say every book has been different because two of my books were quite similar. Uh, the, the baseball blunders and baseball legends, they're, they're quite similar in the sense that yes, both are historically oriented and also both are composed of essentially composed of a great number of short chapters two three four pages with sidebars in almost every chapter uh-huh. so those two sort of seemed like a natural progression uh the others i mean look uh my first book was uh called baseball dynasties with eddie epstein uh a good friend and the book was his idea uh bill the the pitcher's book i did with bill was bill's idea um so uh, uh, even the Powerball book, uh, an editor came to me and said, I think I'd like to publish this book, and I think you might be the person to write it. So um, I haven't really had a great number of original ideas. Actually, that's not true. <laughs> I, I have had, but nobody wants to publish them. So uh, my, my, I, apparently I have no commercial instinct whatsoever. I mean, I could, I could tell you the sorts of books that I want to write. I wanted to write a book about um, a barnstorming tour, uh, Bob Feller's All Stars versus Satchel Paige's All Stars in 1946. I would I read that could... book. <laughs> Pardon me. I would read that book. <laughs> I, I appreciate that. When I when I bring a, when I tell people some of the ideas I've had, they say I'd love to read that, but uh, my agent and my editor typically haven't agreed. So uh, that there have been. I mean, I have a long list. I wanted to write a book about uh, the great baseball manager Billy Southworth. And his son, who was a, a B-17 pilot in World War II, and that never went anywhere. So I, I have a lot of book ideas, as every author does. Sure. But uh, the ones that have sold typically haven't been particularly original or even mine. Mm. Okay. Man, I, I love the ideas for the stories. It just <laughs> that that entertains the heck out of me. They're just it seems like those are just lost stories that I would love to hear come out. Right. Well, I, I, I it, you know, you yes, they they're all good stories. Uh, really what it comes down to, I think, isn't that they weren't good ideas for books. It's that I wasn't the right person to write them, at least by the lights of my my agent and or my editor. And I, I'm not saying that they were wrong. Um, right. I think that one thing I've noticed over the years is that that I'll have an idea, and this has happened multiple times, three or four times at least. I'll have a book idea do a little work on it, maybe pitch it to my editor or my agent. Nothing happens. And then some years later, roughly that same book will be published by someone more qualified to write it than I was. Right. So okay. I think that's a lot of what, what it comes down to. Now, And there have been, right now I'm 20,000 words into a book that um, hasn't sold, probably never will sell, but I just have enjoyed working on it so much that I'm actually, for the first time, um, made some real progress toward finishing a book without anybody buying it, which uh, I, I, it's not the worst thing in the world if you can afford to live that way. Sure. And, um, and so I, go ahead, Jim. I'm sorry. So would you be able to self-publish that uh, sure. then, uh, without any worries from agent or anything to that effect? Sure. I mean, I think self-publishing is a, it can be a viable way to, uh, to, well, I mean, look, it absolutely is, is, a practical way. Lots of people do it. I've always shied away from it because uh, typically, and this isn't always true, but typically you're not going to make as much money. Even though you're going to make a lot more per book, you're probably yeah. not going to sell nearly as many books. But there, you know, there have, there, there have been many famous exceptions to that rule. Um, the other thing is, if you're going to self-publish with any any real expectation or real hope of making any money selling a lot of books you've got to put a huge amount of work into the marketing mm-hmm. all by yourself essentially and i think i've shied away from from that part of it. i'm not a good sales salesman uh i don't really want to work that hard on on selling a book or selling myself it's 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 fantastic when you can hand it off to a publishing company and they do most of that so uh that's why 
probably why I've never tried it. But if this book, if I keep working on this book and I wind up finishing it and I'm only a quarter of the way through, but if I finish it, I, I might try to do that. Okay. Yeah, that's everything he's saying is so true too. From doing the book that Jeremy and I did, um, just the the press that you got to try to put out there, the advertising that you got to do on your own, uh, finding somebody to do covers and and edit your book, and I mean typesetting. I mean, if you ever get to the point where you have to try to typeset a book, self publishing almost it makes you almost want to quit. Yes. Yeah. I've, I've assumed that that it would be grueling. Uh, I'm, I'm not really much one for hard work. I I've worked hard, in, uh, but it's almost it's almost always been on things that were also at the same time fun. Sure. Uh, so the the grueling part I've never been very good at. So it, when it comes to writing, you know this you know as a uh, you know I, one of the questions, and I posed this question to Dan Samborski, so I'll, I'll pose it to you too as somebody who's really seems to be you know in tune with the the craft. You you did some work with Bill James, you know, a very stat-driven person, very numbers-driven. And um, how do you balance a game built on things like, you know, hard objective statistics with the narrative side of the story? When you're writing a book, do you, do you try to balance that? Or are you somebody who leans heavily on the, the, uh, a certain side of that? Well, I... I frankly try to avoid the numbers as much as i possibly can it's uh because of how i got my start first with bill then with stats inc and then writing often usually statistically oriented pieces for espn.com i i gained and probably still have a reputation as someone who is very much into the numbers and uh, i i do enjoy that part of the game and uh, that the analysis having said that uh, I bend over backwards in all of my books to use as few numbers as possible to the point of even spelling numbers out whenever I can get away with it Um, I I to me when you're reading an essay uh, or a chapter in a book whatever it might be or a column uh, if you see a bunch of numbers in a row it sort of takes you out of the story and that's the exact opposite of what we're trying to do. So um, I, if you read, you know, most of my books don't have many numbers at all. Now, if I'm saying that the, if I'm writing a book about baseball blunders and I'm writing about um, the Phillies trading Ryan Sandberg, you've got to find a place to explain why that was such an awful move, right? Right. You can't just say Ryan Sandberg's a Hall of Famer and leave it at that. You, that, that does go a long way, though. Mm-hmm. Uh, it does make the case. And, I probably didn't actually use that many numbers when I was uh, comparing Larry Boa and Ryan Sandberg, uh, but as few as possible. Uh, I, I have never been, in my books anyway, analysis heavy because it wasn't what I wanted to read and it wasn't what I thought people wanted or what I wanted to write, and I didn't think it was what people wanted to, wanted to read. Have you seen a sort of... Uh shift in that way you know like for example for a long time and i would imagine say during the eras of say like ryan sandberg and leading up into uh the modern sort of a very analytically driven world do you see as the numbers have become more accessible as analytics have become more accepted in the game do you think that people's taste for for that for that kind of writing has has gone that way as well or you know how do you feel about that well i would say that the audience for statistically driven analysis has grown exponentially in the last 20 years if it hadn't there 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 wouldn't be a baseball prospectus there wouldn't be a fan graphs plus all the others uh and, and I think that there is also uh, it's I, I would also say that most of the writers for more mainstream sites and newspapers, etc, um, the most of them, or at least the, the better of them, have added a level of analysis that wouldn't have been there 20 years ago. And for the most part, the readers are able to keep up. Uh, so absolutely. But if you read, a great beat writer, uh, Pedro Mora or Derek Gould um, or 
I, 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 I'm leaving a bunch of them out. Um, I can't keep track anymore. Yeah. Tyler Kepner, who's, who's not a beat writer, but is a, is a columnist and or a features writer, and is fantastic. Um, they they all know which numbers are important, and they know how to uh, use those numbers. But it's not out of control. I would, for the most part, I would rather read those writers than than something at Fangraphs or Baseball Perspectives just because um, I don't really have, maybe it's because I grew up in the 70s. Um, I, I don't, I have a somewhat limited tolerance for numbers unless they need to be there. And what I've, what I've, and I'm going to sound like an old man here, which is probably <laughs> because I am, but... Uh, I, I tend to find that a lot of those pieces, the analytical pieces, they have more numbers than they need, and they have more words than they need. They could be, they would be just as good, actually better, at a thousand words rather than sixteen hundred. So, um, having said all that, the state of baseball writing is phenomenal today. It's far better than it was when I was growing up. I mean, the the level of analysis, the depth, the just the sheer volume of base of, of good maybe it's not always great but certainly good baseball writing is just astronomical so this is a fantastic time to 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 be a an obsessive baseball fan who likes to read can I, I, love the, I love when they can paint a picture to go with everything right yep. that, ba- that balance that you're looking for of the statistics being there because they are important but not just dwelling on those and still being able to paint that picture for everybody at the same time that you for people like me that you know i'm more on the number side of things i don't really have a great imagination so when i read a piece that actually opens up and gives me that picture that's when i'm in that, that land of awe it's like, I, I'm, the, I'm the same way i want it all basically right. the perfect the perfect baseball essay or analysis uh it does everything well and they're out there uh, sam miller and ben Lindbergh, who write for different outlets these days but did a book together a few years ago these these guys are as good as anybody who's ever written about baseball and right. and Joe Poznanski's fantastic. I mean, the list goes oh, on. And I would leave out some of my friends, but uh, <laughs> there are just so many. It, it's it really is an embarrassment of riches. I can't keep up with all the, all the good, all the great stuff. So if yeah, I we- could, if I could ask you, like as a follow up to that, you know, when I was doing some of the prep research here, like I look back and, it, you know, I think about that class of sort of the Bill James contemporaries, like guys, you know, like you, I mentioned earlier, you know, Dan Samborski, Christina Carl, Keith Law, um, a lot of these folks that really brought the analytics to the forefront, you know, you're not, you're not, you wouldn't describe yourself as a, as a numbers first person, but do you, do you feel like kind of like your work in numbers brought forth that helped bring forth this sort of embarrassment of riches? Well, Adam, I, I, I think I am the single least qualified person on earth to measure my influence. Um, <laughs> you know, I, last year you, you might have seen this in your research. I won something from an award from Saber, the um, uh, the Chadwick Award. Yes, and which was a, a which was a, a, a real thrill. Uh, I'll never forget the phone call uh, from from Saber CEO Scott Bush. Uh, I know exactly where I was when when I spoke to him. Um, having said all that, he you know. I, I wasn't expecting it. I don't really, I can't measure how much influence I've had. I've had people say to me over the years and write to me that, that, uh, they didn't begin to really look at the game in this particular way because they read Bill James as I did. They did it because they read me at ESPN.com. And so those people are out there, you know, how many there are, uh, how much influence I had, I, I have no idea. It's, it's, I, I do enjoy, uh, hearing stories like that. It, it makes me, you know, it's a, it's a little jolt of energy, but, uh, I, to me, that's, I mean, that's 20 years ago, basically. Yeah. And, uh, I really, I just, I don't have the personality where I would dwell on all these wonderful things that people have said about me in the past. I appreciate them. Uh, I would rather people said those things than than anything than negative things. Um, 
And you know, it's 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 great to be a part of it. Uh, to have been a part of that that time when uh, Baseball Prospectus launched right around the same time that I started working at ESPN.com, and, mm-hmm. and I've always sort of felt a kinship with the early. Uh, Keith was there early. Uh, Jonah Carey, um, uh, Joe Sheehan, of mm-hmm. course. Um, and I've had a chance to be friendly, to b- become friendly with with almost everyone who was there back then. Um, and uh, that's the most rewarding part is not the, you know, winning the Casey Award or whatever. Um, I mean, or the or the Chadwick. The most rewarding thing over the years has been all the friends that I've made uh, being a part of all this. Um, so when I when I think fondly about the last 25 years and what's happened in my career, I think most fondly not about the the books or the few awards that have come my way, but about all the friends that I've made. Wow. Yeah, yeah. That's the way. That's that's the way it should be done, right there, right? It's uh, it, the rest of it comes with it. You can still be you can still be humbled by it. You know, I mean, I don't have a huge following myself, but I, every time anybody says, "Hey, I love what you bring to the game," that that makes me happy. But the reason why I'm doing it is just to be able to interact with people that are like-minded, somebody else that loves the game like I do. That's all I really want out of anything with this, like getting into this situation here where I'm with Adam on a podcast, hanging out with Rob Nyer. Are you kidding me? Tell me that five, six months ago. It's crazy, right? <laughs> and, and I have this possibility now and, and to be able to, to pick at, at people and, and understand what makes you you. And that's the type of stuff I want to hear is what Rob's saying. It's like, yeah, I appreciate the awards, but I mean, the best thing about this thing is the community. And that's right. That's and, what's going to keep it alive. And, you know, I, I did, ha- you know, in terms, I totally agree with you. It's it's the the game itself continues to validate us, you know, as it, as it goes on. Um, I was wondering, you know, you are obviously you've written a lot of books and did you have a favorite baseball book? Like, you know, like, did you, do you have one, a favorite one? Uh, well, yes, uh, two, uh, really, I didn't realize that I wanted to do something like this until, uh, September of 1984 I was 18 years old just barely um, had just started my first year in college at the University of Kansas uh, and within the space of it might have been a week might have been two weeks uh, I had in my hands two books uh, Bill James's 1984 baseball abstract which blew my mind, and a book called Bums, An Oral History of the Brooklyn Dodgers. And these books, in most ways, could not be more dissimilar. Right. I'm thinking about one that. Is, yeah. One is pure analysis with from Bill, uh, and some essays in there, too, and his style and everything. But basically, this is hardcore, uh, mid-80s sabermetrics. And then there's this other book, which is just people talking about a team that had died 30 years earlier. Right. Uh, and I don't know if I had the conscious thought. I probably didn't. But these two books epitomize what I love about about baseball, um, or at least about uh, baseball and the literature. Mm-hmm. There's room for these two incredibly different things, both of which tickle me all the way down to the core of my being. And they always, I mean, I, look, I always loved baseball analysis. Even before that, I just had never read Bill before. I loved baseball history since I was a little kid. The first book I remember was a book called More Strange But True Baseball Stories, which I read over and over again to the point of memorizing all 12 or 15 or 18 of the stories in the book. But Bums took it sort of to a different level because it was a book a thick book about an old baseball team I'd never seen before that I'd never seen. Um, and it was for adults. Um, and, and of course, Bill's book was for adults too. I think prior to that, I'd also read, I'd, I'd read, certainly read ball four, which really hit me pretty hard too. But, but, uh, reading bums and the baseball abstract at the, almost exactly the same time, really it just, that's when it sort of sunk in. Like all I want to do for a while is read baseball books. 
Right. And so you, um, you know, and, and kind of, uh, leading me into my next question, you did, uh, you know, write a book with Bill James, you, you worked with Bill James. Can you describe for those? Cause ever, obviously anyone listening to this knows who Bill James is, but can you, can you describe like what it, what it was like your time working, working for and with Bill? Well, it was four years and a lot of things happened over the course of those four years. And, and the way we worked together would would be change quite a bit depending on what time of the year it was when bill was running up against a deadline which was maybe two or three months every year uh, he might come into the office at four o'clock in the afternoon and work through until the next morning while i was at home and i would barely see him um the rest of the year we would be in the office together go out to lunch uh just shoot the shit about baseball or the fugitive which we both loved (laughs) um uh, and, and so it, 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 it was, you know, it's interesting if you had asked me all the way through college, beginning with the first time I saw that baseball abstract or first t- time I read it, if you had come up to me and said, Rob, if you could choose one job in the world, what would it be? It literally would have been work for Bill James. Um, so you got your dream job. No, I did. And there was no second answer. I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. No, no idea. Um, huh. And I didn't know how to go work for Bill James either. That was pure <laughs> luck. Um, uh, so, yes, it was literally my dream job um, with no backup plan. It just And I just got lucky and, 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 and it worked out. Uh, you, you can't really imagine what that's going to be like when you actually do it. I didn't know what working for Bill James would mean. Uh, it meant a lot of different things. Um, Bill let me do some writing, uh, which was incredibly generous of him. I was not a good writer at that point. I don't know if I am now, but I certainly was not then. Uh, and uh, Bill was very patient with me, taught me a lot of things about writing. Um, I did a lot of research, uh, a lot of it in the library, looking at microfilm, which I really enjoyed, still do. Uh, not for quite as many hours as I did then, but I still enjoy it. Um, the, when people ask me what it was like to work for Bill James, there's a story that always comes to mind. Um, I was still a, a religious Royals fan at that point. And in the winter of 1991 or 92, the Royals traded for an outfielder named Kevin McReynolds, who some some of you might remember. Um, and he was a pretty good, as we used to call them, run producer with the Mets would hit 25, 30 home runs and drive in 85 or 90, whatever. And, uh, when the Royals traded for him, he was probably in his early thirties. And I, I, I was analytical at that point, but not when it came to the Royals, I was still blind when it came to the Royals, I would get over that later, but I was still blind. <laughs> uh, and, um, uh, I said, Bill, this is, this is amazing. What do you think? They got McReynolds. He's gonna he's gonna be great, right? This this is what they need, and uh, Bill just sort of looked at me, uh, and, and I don't think he shook his head, but he could have. Um, and, <laughs> he did uh, with his eyes. Turned around, went back, went into his office, um, shut the door, and I didn't see him for a few hours. And then finally, I heard some. Are you guys old enough to remember the old dot matrix printers? Yes, <laughs> they were very noisy when they printed, right? Like and, and and so I hear the dot matrix printer, and then Bill walks out of his office, and he's got a pile of paper uh, that he, you know, the old printer paper would, was connected to each other, right? So right. it'd be this nice big stack that was all connected, and it was a stack of printer paper, a half an inch thick, and it was the study that Bill had just put together of all the players in history, like Kevin McReynolds. And as it turns out, no, he wasn't going to be great. Uh, At least players like him hadn't been great. And in fact, in real life, he wasn't great for the Royals. He was just sort of blah, which was exactly what Bill's study had predicted. So, you know, getting back to your question, working with Bill was a lot like reading Bill. Bill would take the questions um, or the things that everyone else was saying or talking about and actually study them. And I said something stupid, Bill studied it, and then he showed me what he found. And that's sort of the secret of his success over the years. 
Wow. Okay. Did, did you uh, did you find that uh, trying at all from from time to time? And I mean that with absolute respect to Bill. No, not not in the slightest. Uh, not that part of of working for Bill mm-hmm. because that's why I wanted to be there, and I was the same way, just not with the Royals yet. Right. But um, I one of the things that people will tell you who grew up reading Bill James, uh, and there are a lot of them out there, uh, is that. Bill changed not just how they looked at baseball, but how they looked at everything. Uh, essentially, the, the, the message is don't believe something just because someone tells you it's true. Ask the kinds of questions that would get you to the truth. Um, very few people, are, very few people are, are willing to do that. They don't, they don't, it just doesn't occur to them. And it really hadn't occurred to me until I started reading Bill, Bill's books. And now I do that with basically everything. And it can be annoying to people, absolutely, but it wasn't annoying to me because I wanted to be the same way as Bill. Wow. All right. Um, so, Jim, uh, do you, Jim, do you have a question? I'm sorry, I didn't want to talk I about love it. that. I think it's just getting down to the, you know, the bottom of things, right? It's challenging what you've always known just to make sure. I mean, if it's true, fine. I mean, you get to the right answer and it backs you up, good. But, you know, you come to find out, like he's saying about McReynolds, that just a bunch of players just like him that went through the same setup ended up being the same thing in their 30s. I mean, it's just no more, right? And right. Instead, Brett Saberhagen's off to the Mets and playing in the All-Star game a couple of years <laughs> later, right? So, yep. um, yeah, it's that, I, to me, it's just those stories i love it so um yeah so we're gonna get, we're gonna take a we're gonna take a quick break but when we come back uh rob we want to talk a little bit about what's going on with you these days so uh so so we'll be right back And we're back. Uh, again, uh, st- hanging with us tonight is Rob Dyer. And, uh, you know, uh, this is the part where I get to introduce you as the commissioner of the West Coast League because that's that's one of the big things that's going on with you in the present time. So, um, you know, can you tell us a little bit about the West Coast League and, and, and what's what's going on out there? Uh, Adam, I'd love to. It's uh, it's it's a, a real pleasure to get to talk about something that, that, that I really love. And... Uh, grassroots baseball look with with all of it and i still love major league baseball um i spend a chunk of almost every single night during for six months listening to games on my phone major league games on my phone with mm-hmm. the app at app it's just the greatest invention basically in baseball history as far as i'm concerned <laughs> um so uh, this is not a, a knock on mlb which I, which I truly appreciate um, and remain passionate about, fascinated by. But when it comes to going to the ballpark, I have more fun at a minor league game or a collegiate summer game because the atmosphere I just is just so less, so much less monetized. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can be closer to the players. Um, uh, the beers are six dollars and not sixteen dollars, hey. which. It, uh, so uh, I now, you know, I'll go to three or four or five MLB games a year now, and I'll go to a dozen or tw- 15 or 20 uh, minor league or collegiate summer games, most of which are in the, the West Coast League, um, which is, uh, we like to say it's the the top collegiate summer league west of the, I think we say west of the Mississippi, which is maybe not technically true because a bunch of teams in the Northwoods League are west of the Mississippi, and I think that their quality of play might be a little higher than ours. Certainly west of the Rockies, which is yeah, a big chunk of the country. So I'm happy. I'm certainly. It's perfectly accurate to say that we're the best league west of the Rockies, and maybe maybe more. But uh, uh, it's it's been a real pleasure. We all of our teams are in the Northwest. I love the Northwest. I've lived here for uh, mm, 25 years now, almost. This is my home, and to be associated with a with a baseball league in so many great cities and towns, and and I get to visit all of them. By the way, every summer it's just been great. Have you? Can you give us an idea of how how far the 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 range is geographically of the West Coast well, League? 
we are, in addition to being the top collegiate summer league west of the Rockies, we are easily the most geographically spread out uh, collegiate summer league in the whole country. We have teams. We have a team in Kelowna, British Columbia, which is about. I haven't actually driven. I've only flown, but I believe it's about an hour and a half, maybe two hours north of the border hmm. um, in BC. And we have the and, and the farthest team from them would be the Corvallis Knights. I think it's about a 12-hour drive. So you can imagine. And there and those are those are the extremes. But we've also got a team in Victoria, BC, uh, right across the strait in Port Angeles, Washington. Uh, we have a team in Bend, Oregon, which is a long ways from from Victoria. So um, yeah, the, there are some. It is a bus league. And these these kids have some long trips. Right. And Walla Walla's in the middle of nowhere too. I mean. Walla it's... Walla, you're right. Walla Walla is our furthest west, or furthest east, east. team. That's right. Yep. Yeah. It's it's amazing seeing the the group. I mean, you're 12 teams in the league. Um, and if I'm not mistaken, you guys approached nearly half a million in in paid paid attendance for the league this past season. Including the playoffs, we hit we hit half a million last season. Yeah, and that. I think that includes non-league games because a lot of our teams will will squeeze in a non-league game when they can, uh, three or four a season. So when you add it all up, it was a half a million. Yep, that's a pretty that's, amazing. That's it's impressive. A really amazing yeah. league, and and to put them into places that, um, I mean, in the Pacific Northwest up here, we we have teams, right? We got the Tacoma Rainiers and the and the Mariners and whatnot, but we're put those are teams in Yakima. Wenatchee. I mean, for this area, that's amazing to be able to get. Uh, a, a ball game where you can go out and get such high talent at such a great price for family. It's well, it's and you really know what? Such a good setup. One of the things that, that one thing that's happened is that, uh, and I noticed this a couple months ago when I was working on some his, a, 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 an article for the website. Um, I would say I don't know how many, three or well, roughly half of our teams are in cities that used to host uh, Northwest League teams. Uh, Bend used to have a team. Walla Walla used to have a team. Yakima used to have a team. Portland, which has a team in our league, the Portland Pickles. Portland used to have a Northwest League team. Um, actually, a couple of them. Uh, and I think there's probably... Oh, Bellingham used to have a Northwest League team. So that's five right there. I'm probably forgetting one. Uh, so, yes. Um, we're in a lot of great markets. It Really, if you find a city that's a, a certain size it can support some sort of baseball in the summer. might be the Northwest League. It might be the Pacific Coast League. It might be the West Coast League. But uh, there is a market for baseball in any good-sized city in the Northwest. And you've had some – you have had actually some talent make it to the major leagues. I was noticing um, Nick Madrigal was uh, – was a product of the West Coast League. Uh, are there any other – like um, you, you have had some talent actually make it all the way. Oh, absolutely. And I, I don't have the whole list memorized. I probably should. <laughs> if I'd been a commissioner longer than two years, I probably would know more of them. Uh, in terms of of accomplishments, I suspect that um, Chris Davis would be near the top of the list. Um, and I, there's a couple of pitchers we've had, uh, again, prior to my tenure, who have done pretty amazing things uh, in the major league. Nick Pavetta, who's a real pretty good yeah. young prospect. Um, he was with um, uh, Victoria a few years ago. So there's been a lot of really good talent. And I, I think that our talent has only improved since then um, as we've gotten more uh, big time, especially Pac-12 talent um, in the league. So I think those numbers are only going to grow. And can and, you and, go ahead? And so for every if so the Port Angeles team out here. Does everybody have to be a southpaw to be able to make that? <laughs> the Port Angeles lefties. I think that'd be a that'd be a, that would be a recruited that'd be problematic in terms of recruited. <laughs> terrible platoon situation out there. It would be great if they they should play one game where you don't get to play unless you're a lefty. Right, right. Yeah, I, and I was reading up on uh, Port Angeles. Now they have quite a background of baseball up in that area that that you you researched and wrote about recently on your on your league website um the old stadium there goes back into the 19th century it, well i think they've been playing 
baseball in that spot since then. The stadium itself was built in the 1920s or 30s, and there is a great history there. They've never had professional baseball per se, but they've had some great, you know, town ball teams and logging company teams, and uh, there there really is a rich history in the Pacific Northwest that a lot of people aren't really aware of because it hasn't gotten a great deal of publicity over the years. Uh, I wrote a story. This is not really, this is only tangentially connected, but (laughs) uh, I wrote a story uh, four or five years ago when I was still at Fox about the Grays Harbor Loggers, uh, their championship season when when Bill Murray got a couple of at-bats for them. That's a fantastic story. Not because I wrote it, it's an oral history, (laughs) so it's it's basically all these amazing stories that that people told me, but um, for people who are interested in Bill Murray and his sort of baseball life, um, I would recommend uh, uh, Googling uh, Gray's Harbor Loggers and, and finding that story because it's a lot of fun. Wow. And so can you describe for those for those of our listeners who may not be as familiar with the league and like I've, there is so many little interesting nuances. What's really interesting to me about the league, and I, it, I didn't really understand this until I'd been doing this for for a few months. Everybody's different. The markets are all completely different from one another. Yeah, there are a couple similar. I think Yakima and Walla Walla are somewhat similar, but then you go there and you realize, oh, wow, they're really not. You look at a map and think that that they're going to be the same, and they're not. Uh, You've got Port Angeles, which is this sleepy little old logging town, 25,000 people, and you've got the Portland Pickles. (laughs) You know? (laughs) Uh, And you've got across the strait, of Juan de Fuca from Port Angeles, you've got the Victoria Harbor Cats. Victoria is the most English city in Canada. Uh, it's it's amazing. It's one of the and it's one of the most beautiful, um, delightful cities I've ever been in. Uh, and and we we've got a team there, uh, very popular. Uh, they 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 uh, lead the league in attendance every year. Uh, great great fans. Uh, so they're everywhere you go. The ballparks are different. The ownership groups are different. The, 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 the fans of the cities are different. So that the variety has been the most interesting thing for me as I get to know these cities and get to know the owners, get to know the managers or the head coaches of all the teams. And as I mentioned earlier, one of the real pleasures for me is getting to visit every team during the season. Uh, I, when, 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 I took the job. One thing I said was, look, I don't even really want to do this unless I, I get to visit every city every season. Um, I didn't know if they would want to spend the money for me to do that, but it turned out that that was what something they wanted as well because people who had been in my position prior prior to me, um, uh, they really didn't necessarily feel that connection. Sure. The teams didn't feel the connection. and. It was important to me that they feel uh, that I, that I feel connected to them and vice versa. So, so I visit every every team during the season, spend some time with the owner, spend some time with the head coach, sit in the seats with the fans, and just sort of get a feel for what's happening. And there's some challenges being the commissioner of such a league that seem to arise, at least to my mind. Um, I mean, we talked about the the distance between the teams, so I'm sure scheduling has got to be pretty rough. But I think the biggest one for me is probably pitcher usage, right? Because, I mean, these are college arms that aren't professionals yet um, that that are working to get that professional uh, ability, right? They, they're getting that, that lesson through the league. Um, how do you guys take care of those pitchers' arms? Well, Jim, honestly, the that really hasn't been – a difficult thing for me because our teams take care of them and our teams take care of them for a couple of reasons. One, I would say that generally speaking, uh, our ownership and our coaches genuinely, sincerely, uh, care about these kids. Um, and I'm not saying that we're at a hundred percent compassion at every moment. That's impossible. Right. Right. But, I hear a lot of our, um, I, I all the time I hear our owners talk about uh, taking good care of the kids, making sure they have a good experience. Uh, head coaches say the same sorts of things. And the other piece of it is that 
these these kids, their college coaches are entrusting them with us, and the college coaches, guess what? They pay pretty close attention. Sure. They look at pitch counts, and if 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 we let one of our kids go out there and throw 130 pitches, we're going to hear from his college coach that night. So it just doesn't happen. Um, I think there was one game my first season, which was 2018. Uh, one of our kids, uh, I don't remember if he, if he threw a, a no-hitter or, or it was just a complete game, but he threw a lot of pitches, 120, 125, 130 pitches. But he had no plan to continue playing college baseball. He was done after this season and wanted to go become a cop. So, you know, you make allowances for things like that. But even with that, uh, we did feel that it was it was important that we joined the Pitch Smart program this year. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the Pitch Smart program. Um, it's um, Baseball USA has put this program together, uh, and MLB has uh, helps out too. And basically it's a set of guidelines for different age groups of pitchers. And when you commit as we have as a league, you commit to adhering to these guidelines. So an 18 year old pitcher can't throw more than X number of pitches or throw more than X number of pitches within a two or three day, whatever it is. I mean, there's a whole list of guidelines you can find on the web, but, but uh, uh, we, it was an easy call for us because I think that 99% of the time we were already doing those things. Now we're just going to have this on the league website where all the coaches know, don't forget, here, here are the rules. Don't push your guy past that. And, mo- and almost all of them are going to look at that and say, no problem. We were already doing it this way. So, no, it's, it's a big deal, but I really haven't had to do any work on it myself. That's great to hear. I do enjoy that. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, you're uh, you're definitely staying busy because, you know, you're you're working with the West Coast League. You're obviously doing really good work there, but you're also working with uh, Sabre, which, again, most of our listeners by this point know what Sabre is. But uh, can you sort of describe your, your role with the organization? Well, first of all, I've been a member for a member of Sabre, the Society for American Baseball Research for uh, I'd have to go back and check since 1985 or six sometime when I was in college, I joined uh, because Bill James put a notice about Sabre in his abstract. And I thought this is the place for me. And I was right. It was the place for me. Um, most people think that Sabre is all about Sabre metrics and analytics um, because Bill named Sabre metrics after Sabre. Huh. But it turns out most people in Sabre aren't all that interested in Sabre metrics. Uh, it's really more about the historical research than the statistical research. There are people in the organi- who, organization who love that sort of thing. There's a, there's a statistical analysis committee. But uh, they're in the minority. Um, most of the people who do research are into the hard historical research. Um, uh, and I, I enjoy that part, too, obviously. So... Um, I was uh, ple- incredibly pleased when when they came to me a year ago and said, Rob, we want to start a podcast, and uh, we think you would be a good host for it. And I jumped at it. Uh, I get the chance every week to talk to someone about their baseball life, their research or their books or their passions, whatever whatever it is. Um, and there's, I have a long list of, we've had, I think we've done 47 episodes and I've got a list of 30 or 40 people I haven't had, haven't had on yet that I would like to have on at some point. And that list only grows all the time. So, um, so it's, it's been a real thrill. I I love getting a chance to just, uh, get people on the line and, and pick their brains. Yeah. You've had a lot of really interesting guests. I was just listening to your episode most recently with with uh, Bill Ripken, with Billy Ripken. Uh, I was listening to your episode with uh, a friend of our friend of our show as well, Hannah Kaiser. Um, you know, it, it's interesting because you know, while it you know, I agree with you. I made that mistake when I first started getting into debate. I was like, oh, sabermetrics. It must be all about statistics. But right. when you get into it. You know, kind of like your style where you say, you know, you lean much heavier on the narrative end of things as opposed to the analytical end, um, not dismissing it, but more just leaning one way uh, as opposed to the other. It's almost like a storyteller society in a way. That's that's exactly right. Uh, and even the, the people who do the research, uh, 
they might not wind up telling a story, but the storytellers are going to draw upon that research. Uh, the, the, the entire field of baseball history would not be anything like what it is without all the work that Sabre members have done over the last, well, it's 50 years now almost. Uh, uh, so y- y- you're absolutely right. And that's why Bill was, Bill was so effusive about Sabre uh, when, I, when I was joining. Uh, at that point, the, the analytical community was, was tiny uh-huh. within Sabre or without Sabre. Uh, but Bill was also, he was also in, he was also interested in the hard research and the historical stuff and what happened in the 1896 pennant race or what happened in the, the textiles league in 1912. I mean, all of these things, they might sound esoteric and, and, and they are, but if you're trying to tell stories, what if you're trying to write a novel about, about a baseball team in 1912, you're going to go find some saber research and see what was happening. Right. right. Um, so you're, you're absolutely right. Saber has created this amazing, um, wellspring of, 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 of research and stories that are now there for everybody. That Saber biography project is probably, uh, if it's not the greatest thing on the internet, I really don't know what <laughs> is. It is ridiculous because you know deep down that had to start with absolutely nothing on nothing there, right? They had to build that thing. Right. And I don't know where it's at for a player count and a game count right now for the amount of uh, amount of research that has been done and it's not like they went in there and just wrote up something with like two paragraphs about a guy. I mean, it is a full load about, you know, how a person began their life, their family, through their careers, after their careers, all the way to death and so many players and the list just keeps getting added to constantly and they're just beautiful. And Saber does so much that it's just easy. I mean, you can research anything, and you'll just you're going to land on a Saber bio page if you just type a name into to Google. Well, Jim, Jim, I'm glad you mentioned that because I mean, I should have. It's it's one of the great resources that that people will will now see um, just in the normal course of things because uh, BaseballReference.com, as you know, links to the Saber bios, and we don't have them for everybody. We have thousands of them now. Uh, this that project, believe it or not. Uh, it didn't spring from Bill James's mind, but something else just like it did. When I worked for Bill, um, we worked. We did three. Bill wrote, did three books when I was with him, called the just called the Baseball Book. It was an annual, and all three of them contained entries in what Bill called the Biographical Encyclopedia of Baseball. I think that's what it was called. And his idea was to start with the very first player in the encyclopedia, Hank Aaron at that time, and work our way through the entire alphabet. Wow. Now, it was an impossible project to do in the annuals. It would have taken we would have taken 300 years at the rate we were going. Bill talked about splitting it into its own project, where he and I would just do those and publish somehow. But it just commercially wasn't viable. It didn't make sense. Two people couldn't do it, and people it was too much work, and nobody would pay for it. So then fast forward roughly whatever it was, 20 years, and my friend Mark Armore um, came up with basically the same idea, but this time instead of two people doing it, let's have hundreds of people working on right. this thing. Yeah. And ultimately that's, that's, that's the model that works. Uh, and it's a completely volunteer situation. Anybody can volunteer to write a bio um, and then... Uh, you know, ideally it gets interviews are done, research is done, they write it up, it's good, and then it gets edited, and then you wind up with this amazing piece of research with footnotes and and uh, sources and and all those things. It's, it's like a it's like a a really well done Wikipedia entry on thousands of players. It's it's an amazing thing. Really it's an is. incredible it's an incredible resource it's it, it just it catches everybody up i mean it doesn't matter if you were born in 2005 or 1977 or or 1938 you can go there and find players you know nothing about and get that get that knowledge from it and like you know, like uh like rob's saying the source is right there at the bottom of the page so you know where they're getting all the information it's completely fact-checked and edited. It's just beautiful works of art. And, and you know I, you know what I really like about it? it? You're looking at a... You, you mentioned telling stories. 
if you go to a baseballreference.com page, and if, especially if it's a player with a, with a long career, you're going to see typically these ups and downs, right? Oh, here's a, this year you only played 40 games. I wonder what happened. Well, if you just look at that page, you don't know what happened. Right. It's always been a real gap in the in the in the literature, whether it was whether it's baseballreference.com or or the old print baseball encyclopedias. I have a giant pile of them on my floor right here. Um, you didn't know why he played only 40 games that season. Oh, guess what? This guy's got a saber bio. Click on that. Scroll down to the year. Boom. You know, he 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 hurt his knee sliding in the second. Whatever it is. Right. Um, so it just it it does it 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 helps tell the story. The numbers go a long way toward doing that. Uh, Bill made the point a long time ago that you can look at a a a, a, a long time player's statistics year by year, and you they tell a story, and it's true they do tell a story. It's even better when you have the narrative right behind it. You can look <laughs> at that too. And now we have that with so many of these players. It's, yeah. it, it's really, it's truly an epic undertaking. And, you know, the, the kind of work that Sabre does and that what you do with them is, is a really vital link in the, um, in the sort of, uh, I guess the universe of, of baseball and, and how it tells the story of the history. And, um, you know, it's, it's really and, valuable work, you know, and, 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 and anybody could be part of it. Right? right. I mean, that's what's, what's so nice about it. I mean, there's no doubt in my mind that after we get off of this call, I, I'm going to go sign up for the five-year deal, right? So, um, <laughs> it, but, I mean, the more I look into it, I mean, you got gatherings, right? Up here in the Northwest, I believe it moves around. Sometimes it's in Seattle. Sometimes it's in Victoria or Vancouver. And then they, people just gather that are like-minded, tell stories. And, I don't know, looks like I could get lost. I mean, I'm, I might end up getting a divorce out of the deal if I join. <laughs> but it, it's just the committees and, and the people that you get to meet and the opportunities for people like now, for me, a few years ago, I loved baseball, but I knew nothing really about the history of it. Now I've got the access, when you get into Sabre, of all that information and the people that you can talk to about it. And it just it grows in you, it looks like. And yeah, I've, I've made so many of my best friends uh, through Sabre. And you, you, we, have the, we have the regional gatherings. Northwest Sabre meets, as you said, those places in Portland once or twice a year, too. And, and uh uh, and those regional gatherings, the regional chapters are all over the country. Uh, the, almost everyone listening wouldn't have to drive far to go to a, reg a regional meeting. And uh, those are a lot of fun. We have the Sabre Analytics Conference in Phoenix every March. I'll be there in um, March 13 through 15. And then we have the national, the, 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 the annual convention. This year it's in Baltimore where we'll get five or 600 Sabre members doing research presentations and going to the ballpark and all those things. And it, 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 anyone who's passionate about baseball, any part of it, can find other people in the organization who are passionate about exactly the same things. Uh, the, there are so many like-minded spirits in Sabre that uh, it, it really has been a blessing for me. It's awesome. Yeah, the, get, the guests that show up and, and everything else, too. I mean, if you've ever wanted to meet ball players or uh, people that work in front offices, it's just even at these gatherings, they go to they go there and speak. It's amazing who right. you can get to show up to them and, and give access to just average Joe like like I. Right. It's right. pretty yep. cool. So, uh, yeah, and you know, it's invaluable work and, and Rob, uh, we, you've been very generous with your time. We, we really appreciate you coming on the show and, and sharing all of this with us. You know, it's, it's one of those things where, uh, you know, someone like yourself that's been in, in it as long as you have and has contributed to the game as much as you have, it's, it's very, we are very generous to have given us your time tonight. Oh gosh, it's my pleasure as someone who has to ask people every week, to, to come on the podcast who I certainly can't say no when people ask me. Right? <laughs> yeah. Oh, I guilted cool. him. That's how I got him. <laughs> oh, we appreciate you coming on, but yeah, um, we appreciate you more for the, what you offer, what you keep bringing to the community. So yeah, please, please do that for forever. If you could. Oh, it's my pleasure guys. Thanks for having me. This was a lot of fun. Great. Thank you so much, Rob Nyer. And, uh, uh, we'll be, uh, appreciate everybody for listening and we'll, we'll talk to you guys. Next week.